I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. I was rifling through uh, through the drawers to desperately find attachments, and I found one of my little jeweler's screwdrivers that I had been missing for like two years. So all of that panic that I was just going through trying to find the right connectors to make the Skype thing work netted also another little benefit. So I'm happy about that. Yay, nice. sometimes that happens. I went through... Um this basket that I throw a lot of... It's like my little basket junk drawer that I throw things in. I was looking for my glasses, which I had lost. Ooh. Um, scared the shit out of me because I own one pair. I own one expensive pair, and I keep meaning to go get a cheaper one. But I found a dollar in there before I found my glasses. <laughs> and it was actually pretty sad how excited I was about that. <laughs> yeah, what were you going to... What are you going to use that dollar to buy? A moon pie? I, I don't oh, know. Yeah. I think I think I'm just gonna throw it in a um a little change drawer that I kind of have um with every coin that I find, which is weird because I almost never use cash right now. So um it's pretty rare that I add to that that bucket because I almost never have anything to add to that bucket. <laughs> uh so Mike it's I funny Oh, go ahead, Joe. Oh, no. I was just going to say uh, at HLB, which is where I work, it's DOL headquarters. There is the main place I eat on campus when I don't bring my lunch. It's cash only. So I end up with a lot of change to the point where I've had to I had to, like, dig through my apartment and find my old like little change bucket. <laughs> so I have a place to put all my change. <laughs> Wait. So, what is what is the what kind of cuisine is the cash only? Uh, is it just cafeteria? It's just like dining. They got burgers. They they normally have like a like a a hot case special, a sandwich special, a salad special, and then like something from the grill. Um, they do have the best biscuits and gravy in Olympia. Weirdly enough, I don't wow. understand it, but like <laughs> the gravy is awesome. But you know. I haven't had it in so long. Who knows if that's actually uh, the case anymore. <laughs> it's strange to me that it's just like a college cafeteria, right? But just for the working world. Yeah, it's it's a bit smaller, but yeah, that's pretty much exactly what it is. And it's in it's in the Department of Natural Resources building, so it gets me out of my office and like. In, you know, I have to at least walk to get there. So, so hopefully, by the time everything starts up again, the one thing that didn't change when we when everything goes back to normal is they're like, okay, the cafeteria is back, just not the biscuits and gravy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I don't, I mean, it's crazy to me because that cafeteria, they are the biscuits and gravy. They're like. For a full order, it's less than five dollars. It's like three fifty. Mm, whoa! So, yeah, it's insane. Like the, it's just such a good value. 
Oh, man. It's kind of weird. That's always how that tends to work, is that there's always a place that nobody expects to have something good at that the most amazing version of one thing is at. And um, I don't think I've ever had a job with a cafeteria. I've only had a job where I was next door to a place that sold something that was really good. At Half Price Books, uh, there was a sandwich shop that opened up that I think only people from Half Price Books ever went to. Uh, because it was always empty. It went out of business within like seven months, but it was an import from another part of the country. I think it was like called Capriotis. And um, the sandwich sizes they had, the the pendulum swing of size was pretty wide. <laughs> like it went from on one end, a smaller sandwich to when you said, I want a large, you really didn't know what you were ordering because it was like a Donatello bow staff. <laughs> <laughs> Where I I got a, I got a large um, chicken um, cheesesteak there once, and the chicken cheesesteak was literally two meals worth of chicken cheesesteak. I'm like, <laughs> what? They didn't even have a bag that fit the entire thing, so it's just sticking out of the top. Like one of those stereotypical grocery orders you see in a movie where like a baguette is poking out. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's a but, that's what a large sandwich should be though. Oh god, it was huge and it was amazing and no one else ever went there. Only people it's like we had enough word of mouth among the staff to go there. Um, and I think we were the only people upset because it had a really shitty location. It was at South Center between the Red Robin and that Christian bookstore. <laughs> so it was like one of those tiny little hole in the wall retail locations. And, you know, it didn't say sandwiches, it just said Capriotis on it. And I guess on the East Coast, that means something. But over here, it does not have any name recognition. So it just didn't do well. And I guess they opened two shops in the Seattle area and they both went out of business pretty fast, which is a real shame because that was a really good chicken cheesesteak and you could even get little jalapenos on it. And I just, I loved it. Yeah. This is just you like know, the Seattleites, Seattleites way of thinking about, uh, fuck East coast sandwiches. <laughs> get back to yeah, the Which is Atlantic. hilarious because I have yet to have a sandwich in Seattle. That's anywhere near, it's, good. it's not even in the same fucking ballpark as like in at the on the East Coast sandwiches are a religion. Yeah. You know, we don't we especially in like New York, we don't fuck around with that. And so <laughs> the sandwiches out here, we have a we have a chain down here in Olympia called uh, Maconi's. I had to think about it because, you know, the quar and uh, <laughs> um that's what Kirby calls it. She's like, we're in quar time now. Nothing matters. Um, but uh, McConey's is close to as good. It's, 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 it approaches what a sandwich should be, but it's still, it's still miles away. It's just the bread is not as good. The cold cuts aren't as good. And I think, you know, part of, I think part of the way I feel that way is probably because when I'm having a sandwich in New York, I'm in New York, so I'm in that vacation mind. But it's just it is the whole the the, the whole approach to sandwiches on the West Coast is very very weird to me. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I've never known anything else. 
Um, so I have that sort of sandwich blindness, <laughs> but, uh, I just kind of know when I have a sandwich that's, you know, eatable. I mean, it's not like I'm good. It's like, I'm not, you know, no, I'm not going to kick Subway out of bed, so to speak, but I'm not, I'm not going to like seek it out over other things. If I have other options, I think I've said this before about McDonald's is that, um, McDonald's is, Something I can eat if I don't have other options, but if, as long as there's at least one other option, I will take it. And I don't know if McDonald's got worse from the time I was a kid when it was like an event that I got to eat there or I was taken to a McDonald's. But I, at the very least, I guess my standards are that if I drop a hamburger on the ground, it should fall apart. <laughs> it shouldn't say one. It shouldn't stay as a single solid piece. <laughs> That's uh, that is not unfair. <laughs> and you know, I'm sorry, but McDonald's has a tendency to kind of be one big block made. Of, it's like it's like it's held together Lego style, and I just I kind of want to feel like even after it's been prepared and it's under a heat lamp for a little bit, that it's still separate pieces. And, you know, uh, I feel feel like the the idea of trying to judge things that you knew and enjoyed as a kid and in the intervening, you know, 30 years or so, it's got kind of a Berenstein, Berenstain problem, um, which is about your perception as a child is was is necessarily primitive. And but there's also the just that like the ingredient drift of who knows like what they used in 1989 uh, to make the the cheese out of, and what do they use yeah. in two that in twenty twenty? I don't know. I mean, I, the candy bars are probably smaller. You know, I maybe now all drinks have high fructose corn corn syrup, but like, what is the difference? What would go uh, be the difference going back and having a McDonald's cheeseburger in nineteen eighty eight versus the exact same item in in twenty twenty? Like, it's impossible to say at this point. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have to imagine it has to be better because I know that, like you said, there's an ingredient drift. But I mean, the forces of capitalism are trying to cut corners and cut on costs and trying to make things more efficient. And usually that's not the way to make great food. <laughs> yeah. And I think that it probably has gotten worse. I, my understanding, and there, I guess there's enough people saying that the apple pies used to be a great deal better there than they are now. I guess they used to be deep fried and now they're just kind of baked and not quite as good. But I think overall, I mean, I think that there is an experience to drinking Coke in a glass bottle, which they still make. They just don't sell it in the United States. And it's weird. It's like, it's an American product that gets bottled in Mexico and then re-imported into the United States so that we can have the experience of a product that we stopped selling here probably because, you know, high fructose corn syrup manufacturers, corn manufacturers, you know, people who uh, make plastic um, have too much of a, an investment in a business relationship so that we just don't sell the glass Coke bottled with real sugar in it here anymore. But we do still sell it in Mexico. And it's a real shame. But, I mean, then it becomes this weird treat to find Mexican Coke at a restaurant or at a convenience store. It's I've started yeah. to see them more in grocery stores these days. It's weird. But uh, I, I will tell you that I remember the Taco Bell of my youth. I can't remember whether or not McDonald's was better. 
Um, when I was 16, my first job was at McDonald's. And so I, everything I ate, I basically made for myself. So it was a lot better than the gen- generally the stuff I get at McDonald's because it was like right off the grill. But I do, I remember Taco Bell being a lot better because the, the beans weren't just, they weren't watered down to the point where it was basically just soup wrapped up in a tortilla and like <laughs> the meat tasted like something. It's the only, it's funny because the one thing that I had after years of not having it and continues to be exactly the way I've always remembered it are Jack in the Box tacos. Like, yeah. They just have not changed in, in 30, you know, 35 years. They're just exactly, they're always exactly what I want when I want them. And that's, that's a very rare thing. Um, of, uh, before, before the choir started, <laughs> before choir time, Quar. I went down to see my brother in Beaverton, Oregon, and they just opened an in and out in Salem. So we drove down there. Oh, whoa. They're, they've drifted pretty drive. far north. They, the last I heard of it was in Southern Oregon in Medford, where I grew up. And it was like, oh my God, they, it, this is like the first one they have, have made any far north, north of like. Wairika or something uh yep, and now yep, no, it's in they're... now it's in salem yeah yeah wow. it, it absolutely is and i i've i think they're gonna end up in portland and probably up here too it makes sense um but uh th- there was a crazy ass line we were in line for an hour and i I was like starting to get a little annoyed and then I got my burger and I ate it and I was like, oh yeah, this was absolutely worth the wait because it's exactly what I wanted. And there are so few fast food places that guarantee that, that every time you go in, you are going to get exactly what you wanted when you walked in the door. So there's, there is a substantial reason why, uh, what you're just, you're just putting your finger on it why they didn't that's the reason why they didn't move north for so long because they worried about the surety of their supply chain for the the meat and the the potatoes and whatever and they thought well if it's a certain number of miles away and you can't source it properly you're going to have this completely inconsistent experience and it won't be up to the standard of a really fucking good in and out burger incidentally in and out burger is the first place that i went on a date with my now wife so that really? holds a very special place in my heart, but it, it uh, I've had enough of it to know that I won't, I, you know, I love it. I would go, I'll go back anytime I'm in LA, I'll go have one or whatever, but I'm not going to spend an hour in line for it. That's just the I, weird I, thing. I, yeah. The, the funny ahead, thing I found with um, these kind of lines at fast food restaurants, especially when it's a regional chain that suddenly pops up is I know that there have been national ads on television for Sonic Oh, yeah. For the longest time, and they just started opening around here. And for a while, it was a massive line around the block where it was actually spilling out into the street. There's a lane of traffic that was out of use because it was on the right <laughs> side going into the Sonic parking lot. And um, it was weird because it, it just reminded me that, you know, that part of us that waits in line for things, the midnight release thing, you know, that impulse to buy a video game when it immediately comes out or see a movie at midnight before, you know, it, it, the thing that I've kind of grown out of, I think it's just a human impulse that like, I want to sound a hamburger. I don't know what's at the end of that line, but I have to have it because these other people want to have it. 
and um, it was really strange. And it's kind of funny we're talking about this a bit, and I see sort of this this element of our age range where um, everything used to be better when we were kids, and I don't know if this is a disease that's going to get worse with us. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> oh, oh like, yeah, yeah. It's just we're going to be old man yelling at cloud. Uh, but I just think it's be a probably good time for us to, to cut in and just say, hey, uh, folks, uh, we are doing a remote recording today and that <laughs> we are uh, joined by our good friend Joe Preddy from uh, from the View from the Gutters po- comic book podcast. Uh, welcome <laughs> aboard, Joe. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, I do want to say it's the now defunct or at least indefinitely defunct View from the Gutters podcast. Uh, podcast we haven't recorded in a while and i don't know that there are any plans yeah it was one of those things where um uh view from the gutter started at a place where everybody involved was either out of work and in school and just had a bunch of free time and as the years went on we you know we changed our lineup and then view from the gutters kind of fell away and me and tobiah were doing um the house, the uh, the house of Jack and Stan, and then Tobias got into grad school, and so that kind of fell down. So I hope that we do go back to the house of Jack and Stan because I I really enjoyed it. But um, I am always glad to be here, uh, and by here I mean in my bedroom, in my bed, <laughs> under the covers. <laughs> Yay! So yeah, we're we're doing a. Uh... A remote podcast, and this is going to be an interesting experience because I have to figure out how to sync this all up later, and I think it'll be pretty okay. I, we all have our own decent microphones. Yeah, we, and, we've got experience. Uh, we've got experience on our side, Mike. So we'll make it happen. Yeah, we've yeah. we've done this before. I think we're going to be okay. But uh, before we go any further, I do want to thank our episode sponsors because since this is an un, unstructured podcast, I worry that we won't get a chance to. So we want to thank our episode. sponsors. Sponsors. So a special thank you out to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Zuri Russell, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Jem Newman, Sinjin, David Gutierrez, Calzone, and our newest episode sponsor, uh, Carol and Dave Brulette. So we want to oh, say thank you to all of them. Thanks, Carol and it, Dave. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, we had Dave on our Terminator 3 episode, and we do plan on having Carol on. They are the co-hosts of the dearly departed yeah. uh, hands-free football podcast, the soccer podcast for, I guess it's an ambassador podcast towards people who don't watch soccer, and uh, it, it was it's dearly missed, and I hope they'll come back in the future. Yeah. But we do appreciate their support. We are just becoming and, the orphanage for uh, for wayward <laughs> lost podcasters, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I was going to say... <laughs> oh, podcasts! You know, we just gotta you gotta keep them going across the uh, the apocalypse as we are right now. Well, you don't you don't want to, you. There's always like the fate that, uh, much like the car that uh, breaks down on you, has the inevitable slide into the junkyard. As so too with podcasts, but instead of it going to a place where it's going to be recycled, hopefully it gets packed away on archive.org somewhere. And so for you know. Un- untold number of decades it'll sit there and no one will listen to it 
That's, yeah, that's all that's, we can ever hope for our show. This. <laughs> Maybe someday this will be pulled out of the rubble by an alien civilization, and they just try to figure out what the fuck Rise of Skywalker <laughs> is. And are they? Go- they just see people. Do they just know that we just seem to be angry about it? They're wondering: Is that what destroyed the civilization? <laughs> so, <laughs> what is this yeah, about the Snyder of- Cut? <laughs> that's oh my god. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's not, uh, you know, I, I feel like there is a not too tenuous link between the rise of Skywalker and the collapse of civilization, because that every choice, including the choice to bring back J.J. Abrams, was based on Disney wanting to make as much money as possible. And they were so scared after the the um, the last Jedi Although I don't know why, because these people yell and complain on the internet. And I think I've said this before on your podcast. I think I think I said it right after when we talked about Last Jedi. The people that are like, Ray is a Mary Sue. If you think Ray is a Mary Sue and you don't think Luke Skywalker is a Mary Sue, then fuck right off, okay? <laughs> seriously. <laughs> just, just wait until you meet Batman and James Bond. <laughs> yeah, just right. like, seriously, this is the perfect time for you to just go off and get lost in the woods because there's nobody around to look for you. Um, I, I'm i a little bit sad that we've kind of lost the the other meaning of the term Mary Sue, that we just use it now as a way to, to denigrate female characters that are competent. But for a long time, <laughs> it had a second meaning. It wasn't just that it was a flawless character for whom everyone everything was easy. The, the other element is it was an author insertion character yes. that this was a way for the writer to be praised by their favorite characters. So they would be the new crew member of the USS Enterprise who was smarter than Spock and a better pilot than Sulu and braver than Captain Kirk. And there'd be a moment at the end. It's like that episode of that introduced Barkley on uh, on Star Trek The Next Generation, where at the end he's in the holodeck simulation, but you don't know it, where the entire crew goes, oh, thank you, Reg. We're so sad to see you go. You're the best of us and all that. And it is just a simulation. Now imagine someone writing an entire book of, of or a novel or, or whatever. That's what it is. It's like, I want all of my favorite characters to tell me personally how great I am in the context of their own universe. So oh, absolutely. If there's anybody who is guilty of the this definition of Mary suing it's Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler is the person who, in any movie that he stars in, lives in a mansion. He's always married to someone like Salma Hayek. Um, he has like an ad executive job that's sort of vague in this giant fucking John Hughes house, and he's the best at sports. He usually wins a fist fight in all of his movies, um, and all the humor is sort of generated outwards. He's never the butt of his own jokes. Right. And it, that's a that's a Mary Sue. And by the way, I'm not talking about something like Uncut Gems. I'm talking about an Adam Sandler movie, not a movie starring Adam Sandler. Because Uncut Gems is actually really good. Um, it's just that, you know, I think Adam Sandler just needs to get adopted uh, the same way that, say, like Scorsese adopted Leonardo DiCaprio. He just needs a director who just goes, I'm going to put this guy in non-shit. Yeah, because um, yeah. left to his own devices, Adam Sandler in Adam Sandler movies is intolerable. Man, the Safdie well, the Safdie he- brothers are are not unlike Quentin Tarantino. If I don't know if either of you saw Good Time, um, the Robert Pattinson movie that came out before Uncut Gems, but you know Robert Pattinson has had an uphill climb too. 
of being sort of a very maligned actor who has been who was put in a box, I'd say unfairly put in a box because of yeah. the Twilight series. And uh, you have him in an uncut, you have him in um, in Good Time, and he's doing something with a character that is, uh, you believe, is a protagonist, but he is also an, an antagonist, not unlike, not unlike um, Adam Sandler's character in Uncut Gems. And he, he, it is a fucking powerhouse performance of a. It's, it, it's also like Uncut Gems, a movie where you just have your stomach, your your colon is clenched, your sphincter is oh clenched God, the entire yeah. time. Um, but yeah, the yes. Safdie, Safdie brothers just they adopt actors and rehabilitate them. Uh, you know, I'd I'd put Terry Gilliam as a um, as a director that's like that as well can take an actor yeah, and rehabilitate I mean, their image. That's what we kind of got with Tarantino and uh, Travolta. He was probably one of the best examples. He also gave us Robert Forster back. And I think that there's, but I think Robert Pattinson had it worse. And I think it's kind of nice to see that both he and Kristen Stewart have gotten finally under the shadow, out from under the shadow of the Twilight series, which has sort of haunted them their entire life. Yeah. Um, that they got famous because of it, but it's sort of like they're sort of the butt of a joke that actually isn't told. And I think that like you see something like The Lighthouse, and Robert Pattinson is incredible in that movie. Yeah, he is. And you see something like um, Uncut Gems, and you're like, you know, Adam Sandler, you could be great if you chose to be. That because of something like this and Punch Drunk Love, I see no reason why other people wouldn't want to put you in a movie and do something incredible. Because Uncut Gems is straight up like a two-hour panic attack on the screen. It's... It's it's a pretty spectacular movie, but I don't know if I could make myself watch it again because it is a harrowing experience when you're watching that movie. It just it it feels like you are helpless to stop this guy from making a series of bad decisions that just compound on each other and lead to a finale that couldn't not have happened. Like you know you're moving towards it the entire time. You can't stop it. But it's it's kind of that same John Constantine-esque impulse of okay, I just did an incredible thing. I got out from under this thing that's been hanging over my head the entire time. Now I'm going to spin the wheel again, you know, improbably against all odds. And you're like, what are you doing? Stop. <laughs> and you just want to grab him and shake him. And uh, it's it's just it's crazy. It's like that movie is like if you see somebody who spends 20 years of their life wasting their money buying lottery tickets and then they finally win and then they take all of their winnings and use it to buy more lottery tickets. <laughs> yeah. That's what that movie feels like. And you're just like, no. You know, it's funny. I think I think Sandler is... Um, I think he's got chops. I like funny people, despite the fact that I really don't care for a lot of Judd Apatow's movies. Hmm. I think he's great in Spanglish, too, even though that movie does put him in a big house with a beautiful wife that he, you know. Um, but I I also think that um, I'm, I am strangely excited for Robert Pattinson to be Batman. 
Mm-hmm. Like they released that picture of him in the in the bat suit, and I was like, that I actually don't mind that. I think he's got. I think he looks great in the cowl. I'm, I'm like, yeah, this is good. This is what this looks like a Batman. I'm I'm interested in. Um. I'm glad that the Batmobile is a car again. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. Yeah, thank God. Because, oh my God, I'm so tired of the Bat Tank. I'm so tired of it. I'm so tired of all this shit that, like, Chris Nolan thought he was being very clever and doing, seeping its way into pop culture. Like, for for all the accolade and acclaim those movies get, I just... I will never not blame them for just ruining my love of the character. I mean, they didn't ruin my love of the character, but I just, I think it's another dark night moment where everybody learned the wrong message. I don't think those movies are as good as everybody says they are. I'll fight you for it. I swear to God, I hate those movies. <laughs> I, I think the first one is okay at best. The second one is overwrought and entirely too circuitous. And the third one is just hot garbage. And oh, the third ruined- one has that amazing Bane voice. I mean, it's, <laughs> I do not like The Dark Knight Rises, but I love that version of Bane oh, no. to a degree that I can't is, be objective. Tom Hardy is fantastic. And he is easily the best part. But, like, that movie didn't just, like... That that killed any love I had of Chris Nolan. I, I I do like Inception, but Inception was the last movie of his I saw, and uh, I'm just I'm just kind of over it now. Like I think we might be starting to get back to a Batman that's a detective, that is a critical thinker, that's a scientist, and I just be I think it's only because. Nobody wanted him as like BVS was so bad mm-hmm. that it, it's kind of forced this other thing, like the 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 ruination of the DC cinematic universe. Hopefully, will bring a lot of characters back. You know, so yeah. So I was listening to another podcast, and since I have guys on that know about D- DC characters, um, actually, I was going back and listening to. Oh, it might have been. Uh, it might have actually been We Hate Movies and they were going back and doing Man of Steel and Mike, I saw Man of Steel with you. I've seen it only once and I believe, Joe, you have seen Man of Steel, I take it. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, they, I did not care for it. Yeah, I, there's, a lot, there's a lot wrong with it and there was this point where one of the fellows who wasn't me who, who's saying this but I could I understand the sentiment is um, is where you get to the end of the movie and you're like, well, where is our Superman that we know of? You know, um, yeah. And the podcaster had this idea of of well, they there were interviews with Zack Snyder and talking about what the next movie might be, and the ex- sentiment he expressed was, oh, well, this is the movie that sets up that character, so they'll do it again next time. And to me, I feel like that sort of just giving away the giving away the expectation that you. Uh, uh, that you have of them doing something faithful to a character and saying, oh yeah, it's going to be different next time is like the biggest and most pernicious problem with sort of 
the your, these the fans' expectations of the of an adaptation. Because if it's, but I also yes. think it's if, a lie. If Star I think Trek, that these directors, when they say that, they're just making excuses for why they didn't make no, the thing. If the movie is going to be and, have a bunch of money, they're going to do the Man of Steel two with even more nine elevens the next time. They're not going to choose to mm. make it Christopher Reeve Superman <laughs> suddenly. You know. But that was my beef I think I had with the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies. Yes, exactly. Is that they all ended saying, okay, we got through the prologue. Now we're about to move into the Star Trek you realize, you recognize. Now we're in iconic Star Trek. And it does that at the end of the first one. It's like, okay, we're about to start Star Trek now. And then the next one starts, okay, okay, at the end of that, no, okay, now we're about to start Star Trek. <laughs> And it wasn't until the third movie that they just kind of stopped telling the Captain Kirk origin story, stopped telling the Spock origin story, and just told a Star Trek story. And I think that, you know, we have to kind of move past origins with a lot of these characters now. And I think Batman um, especially. I, I would say that my hopes for Batman are not super high, because I kind of know that the things that I want and the things that executives want and the things that have proven to make money are not necessarily the same things. And um, I, I know for a fact that people don't exactly look to me to decide how to make movies. <laughs> um, clearly. So I would say that I am going to set my expectations of what I consider metrics of success, what I want out of this Robert Pattinson, is it Matt Reeves, the director, Batman movie? Yes, yes. Okay, so I have two things, and I think I've said these on the show before. Uh, thing the first, I don't want to see Martha Wayne's pearls <laughs> ever again. I don't want to see them. Uh, exp I mean, they've gotten more and more absurd. I mean, it's from The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, the original use of that. So Frank Miller created an iconic image that people have beaten like a dead horse. Yes. Uh, then we saw it again in the first Tim Burton movie. We saw the pearls again, I believe, in Batman Begins. And then we saw the most absurd version of the pearls in Batman v Superman, where uh, the slide on the gun coming back when it fires actually tears her pearls apart and they explode everywhere. <laughs> So now we just got to let's just not see his parents get shot and we can just see him look sadly for a second at a newspaper headline he has framed in the Batcave or something. Hey, hey, you know and what? We've seen you, it before. We know what happened. Mike, I'd want to give Martha Wayne a pearl necklace. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, oh, there comes my first edit. <laughs> um, I think there are three origins I, I don't think ever need to be shown on screen again. I never, I never need to see the Waynes die. I never need to see Kal El on Krypton, and I never seem need to see uh, um, Uncle Ben die. We all those things are so part of the zeitgeist. Nobody ever needs to see them again. I think it was the most successful part of. I think the reason uh, Spider Man Homecoming worked so well is because it focused on him, not his obligation to Ben, but his obligation to himself. And that's, you know, that's, I think, that movie showcases something I really love and that I think is missing from a lot of these Zack Snyder and, and, and Chris Nolan movies where it's like, that movie works so well because by the time he get, you get to the end, every moment that happens was earned. 
Peter has earned the right to be there. We have he, the the director of that movie earned the right to of our emotional connection to those characters. And I think it comes to a head for me when he blows up the when the vulture blows up the be, the building that Peter is in, and he's got to lift himself up. And it takes remembering why he does this. And I think that's a really great moment. And there is no moment like that in Man of Steel. There's no moment like Jonathan Kent's death is a great example of this. There's supposed to be this great emotional connection, but there isn't because he's been an asshole through the whole movie. <laughs> and that scene, there is no justification of it because Superman moves faster than anybody could see. Mm-hmm. Like the great thing about Jonathan Kent's death is that it comes from something that Clark can't stop. Yeah. It co- it's his own, it's his own body that gives up. And that is the first time Superman realizes there's going to be shit he cannot stop by being the strongest and the fastest. He can't, he just can't do it. Yeah. And that is a formative moment for young Clark Kent that is absolutely absent from Man of Steel. And so it's Especially because they make it a choice to not save him rather than something he's powerless to stop. Absolutely, yes. And so that object lesson, just like when fucking Martha is saying, oh, Clark, you don't owe them anything. It's like, fuck you, Zack Snyder, seriously. (laughs) Like, you, oh my God. Although- I will say this. I recently re-listened to We Hate Movies about 300, and they said that 300 was a worse movie than... Um, I think 300 is a better movie than everyone on that podcast thought it was. I think it's definitely better than Watchmen. Hmm. But I, I don't know. There was one specific where I was like, I mean, it's definitely better than Man versus Steel or Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman. Like, I would watch 300, 300 times before I ever watched one of those movies again. I would almost. I, I could see. The weird thing with uh, Batman v Superman is I think that it's interesting as a thing to show a person who doesn't believe how weird it is. Because it's a very strange movie that feels like it was birthed out of an insecurity about loving superheroes that I don't think exists outside of the most toxic parts of the internet anymore. But it used to be so prevalent, especially when we were like 10 to 16 years old, where Mm -hmm. you could get teased or beat up for liking this stuff before it became super mainstream. And we could just learn to calm the fuck down because superheroes are cool. And finally other people started to realize it. Um, It was the same way that we used to have this knee jerk anger at Adam West and Biff Bam Pow, and we couldn't enjoy anything fun And it feels like in the last 10 years that we finally kind of let go of trying to desperately prove to people who don't fucking care that it's okay to like the stuff that we like by over-seriousing it, over-darkening it, trying to prove that I like something that is serious art. And, you know, it looks like Batman v Superman is made from this very insecure 90s style mindset. And it's so much of that mindset that it almost becomes a parody. So I think I showed Piper a few clips of Batman v Superman on YouTube. And the expression on her face was incredible because it felt like 
is this for real? That that's how Jesse Eisenberg is acting in this movie. I showed her the Martha scene and I'm like, this is about what this movie is. There's a lot of really angry CrossFit. There's a lot of people staring off into the middle distance in the rain of being angry. There's a lot of just yelling. Um, there's, it, it's a really strange movie because it feels like this is what a maladjusted 13-year-old boy thinks being a serious adult is. And it's yeah. strange. <clears throat> but, I mean, Zack Snyder's not a, a 16-year-old boy. So it's, I don't know what it is, but it's a kind of movie that I don't, I you know, you watch it and you go, okay, the sort of person who likes this movie, and this is true of Sabotage as well when I was watching that, Ugh. is... Whoever it is this movie is made for, I don't think I can be friends with them. <laughs> well, and I think I think that's uh, yes, I agree. You should not be friends with people that like sabotage. That movie is god awful. Well, find me one um, person who does like sabotage. I just don't think they exist. <laughs> I I mean, I yeah, that's fair. I think that Zack Snyder has um he is the modern day George Lucas in the way that he has some interesting ideas, but he has absolutely no ability to self edit. And so everything ends up being on screen. I don't think he's got the same problem that JJ Abrams has, which is that JJ Abrams just fundamentally misunderstands what a narrative is. Like, I think that, um, Zack Snyder just, he can't edit himself. He's got, he needs to be, he's like Michael Bay with no appreciation of spectacle. And so all his spectacle just is, it's like, oh, I just like, it's like when you're at a party and somebody is trying to tell you this thing that happened to them, but they're not very good at it. And also it was a, it involved a lot of things that like are unique to their life. So when they get to like, the, the big crescendo, it falls flat because you're not them and they just had to explain too much about it. That's Zack Snyder's, that is like all of Zack Snyder's movies, except that he doesn't bother to try and explain anything either. He's just like, this is so cool. And you're like, I'm waiting for the cool part, Zack. And he's like, no, it's just right there. Don't you see the cool part? Like, look at how cool it's so epic. And you're like, no, you you set up nothing about this. You, you gave me no reason to expect that this would happen. And I have no appreciation of anything or anybody that's in the scene. So why would I think that's cool and epic? Like, you gave me nothing to... You told me to go up to the second floor. You gave me no staircase and no ladder. And now I'm just standing in this house going, well, I wish I could get up there, but I have no way to. It seems yeah. like it seems like the way that that BVS colon D O J seems like it Department of Justice. Department of Justice, yes. Uh the the way that it came about is kind of inscrutable if you don't already understand that he's making a story with a character that is with characters that are just almost universally recognized 
uh, in sort of the pop culture landscape. So if you try to tell the story, if he tries tries to tell this story in the same way, and we don't know who Batman and Superman are, and we don't already have, you know, 80 years of familiarity, and I don't know how many different forms of adaptation of those characters, and know the beats of, this is why Superman is, where is he from? These are his weaknesses. Where does Batman come from? Like, if you don't already know that, um, it would have been impossible for him to get that to tell that story because he doesn't seem to yeah. have any interest in letting us know who the characters are and why they are the way they are because we already know that the audience already knows that um and that's that's a benefit i guess you have of being of being a writer or a director or a storyteller for a character that everyone already knows and maybe that's the disconnect here joe is that he just assumes that we all have a common sort of storytelling understanding of who these characters actually are and so the only thing he can do as a filmmaker um to the characters that hasn't already been told a thousand times before is make it some kind of just bizarre dark you know, violent masturbatory fantasy, um, which yeah. is what it was. And, I, and that, that was it, it. What you get with Zack Snyder is you get his facet, look his facet on the diamond of looking through those characters. And he, I don't know if he knows how to tell a good, simple story um, with the character arc and the beginning, middle end that makes sense. But he was there to t- tell the story in that, as the way Sam des- or Mike described it, like a 13-year-old boy would tell it. Um, but I think that, like I said, I think it's just that we all know the character and that's the reason why he can get away with it. Well, I think the other element of, of Zack Snyder, I think, is that he's somebody who wants to blow your mind. Yeah. So he doesn't want to tell a traditional version of any of these characters. He wants to turn on his head and make you go, whoa. But the problem is, I don't think he's a, and I'm not going to shit on the guy, but I don't think he's a particularly deep person. And I think that because of that, it tends to be very elementary where maybe it's impressive to somebody who hasn't taken a 101 level philosophy or comparative religion class where it's just like, whoa, he's turning the, pangel, the the painting of the angels upside down. I mean, <laughs> it's like that kind of stuff. It's like when you watch a movie and the first thing it does is there's like a dark screen and silence and like a quote from the Bible where Nietzsche comes up and I immediately <laughs> go, oh God, here, this is the kind of movie I'm watching. Um, where it's like, this is what a, a dumb movie thinks a smart movie is, um, but isn't particularly convincing about it. Um yeah, that's 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 the impression I got from his sort of stuff, which is that I think he's ambitious, which is good, but I think his ambition outstrips his ability to successfully execute what he wants it to be. And like he wants this to be this mind-blowing, you know, philosophical battle that is just symbolic and operatic, but it just comes across as pretentious and dumb. Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, 
please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.